Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Philippians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 13 this morning, and the text is printed in the bulletin on the next page for you also. Philippians 2. <clears throat> so, um, during Advent, we're really talking about stuff that's pretty basic to Christianity, stuff that's pretty fundamental to Christianity, specifically the incarnation. It's really what Christianity is all about, the incarnation. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. It's the high point, and it's the focus of all the scriptures and primary places given to this miracle, the miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God as he became a human being, as he became Jesus, as we know him. So, <clears throat> we've been using the, um, the basic investigative questions to understand Jesus, understand the incarnation to whatever degree is possible for us, uh, to understand it and, and know the significance what it, what it means for us that Jesus, that, that the Son of God became this human being. So, um, <clears throat> sort of a side note, invitation to sermon discussion or get coffee with me. I'd love to hear what you think about these things that really are fundamental to our faith, the incarnation. So, <clears throat> uh, when we started the series, we first asked the question, who? And it's, you know, these basic questions, who, what, when, where, why, how, those kinds of questions are what we're asking. The first Sunday we asked the question, who? Who is the incarnate one? Who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh, and he's uh, uh, the perfect human being. He's truly God, he's fully God, and he's fully human, and truly and perfectly human. Uh, then last week we asked our second question, we asked what? what? What happened in the incarnation? What was accomplished in the incarnation? And talked about this exchange that took place, and um, keep coming back to Irenaeus, um, one of the ancient church fathers, who summed it up really well. He said, he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. So the Son of God came into our place to take us up into his place as sons of God through adoption. So that's what happened in the incarnation. Now, this morning, we're asking the question, why? Why did the incarnation happen? Um, why? It's a question that you ask to sort of get to the bottom of things, right? Um, children ask it incessantly. We all know that. Um, and they demand answers. Why is the sky blue? Well, something with the molecules scattering the light from the sun. Yes, but why? But why? <laughs> yeah, good luck with that, right? Um, they, they do it all the time, and maybe it drives us crazy, but, boy, they're looking for something. They're trying to get to the bottom of things um, with the question, why? Scientists ask the question, and they expect there to be answers because there generally have been. Why does an apple fall to the ground? There's a thing called gravity. You come up with that idea. Well, why does that? Well, why is it like that? Counselors ask the question, why, when trying to help people change to get to the roots of why they're acting this way or that. People ask the question why when they've been hurt and they're hoping for some answers to try to make sense of the pain. It's a great question, why? And I think we're almost instinctively compelled to ask the question. We live in a world where there are reasons for the things that are This world is a cause and effect kind of world. Things have explanations. There are answers to why questions. And some why questions get deeper to the core of reality than others. 
and some, uh, some answers to the why questions are more ultimate than others. You ask the question, why the incarnation? It's probably a more important question than why is the sky blue? <clears throat> so if the incarnation is the most profound thing ever to have happened, and we ask, why? Why the incarnation? Why did God do it? Then you're going to get the most profound answers. And with Jesus, the answers are very good news. So that we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about this morning from Philippians chapter 2. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture together. Father, we are a people of many questions. We have a lot of questions for you, and we pray that you would purify our questions. You would help us to ask the right questions of you. We think it is good to ask the question, why? Why would you do such a thing as come to the world in the person of your son and become a human being? Why would you do it? We pray that you would help us to see as we consider your word this morning, help us by your Holy Spirit to see the good answer that the good news brings to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this week I was um, out of town visiting family in Richmond, Virginia. I got the chance to talk with an uncle of mine who is not a believer. I'm not sure he's ever spent any time attending a church. Um, He grew up in Belgium, and where he was, um, uh, there were so many um, ways in which the Roman Catholic Church that was sort of a cultural institution there uh, that he had to um, sort of fight against because the the Roman Catholic Church had many abuses in in history and in that place in particular. So sort of reacting against um, Roman Catholicism and deciding not to be a believer for the rest of his life. He's, uh, however, very committed to the people in his life, very committed to the relationships in his life, especially family relationships, Uh, I think remarkably so. Even when someone, um, maybe somebody in the family, they get a divorce, and someone divorces their way out of the family, he'll stay in touch with them because, you know what, they were a big part of our lives, and you don't just write them off. Um, 
So he has a hard time understanding why people reject families so completely as never to speak to them again, or when family relationships are characterized by um, disrespect or meanness toward each other. He has a hard time understanding this, and he actually gets pretty upset about it. And I think that's a great connection point for the gospel. So, um, so I was talking with my uncle, basically trying to explain a Christian view of relationships. Right? Talking about, basically, we were made for relationships. We were made to love. We were made to stay together and to live for each other. We were made for that, made uh, to be faithful to the people and the relationships in our lives. But our biggest problem as humans is our self-centeredness. That's what's wrong with all of us. Self-centeredness. We're not supposed to be self-centered, but we are, which ultimately puts us at odds with everyone else. We use people to get what we need or to get what we want until really it's just not convenient to ally ourselves with them anymore or it's not expedient to do so anymore or we just can't stand pretending anymore and it leads to relational breakdowns and fighting and divorce and distancing ourselves from one another. And on a regular basis, it's fairly obvious to everybody that the people who are closest to us, we're, we're best at hurting. Right? That relationship should be good, these family relationships, but they're usually the most painful and uh, good examples of how self-centered we are. If we're going to become the kind of people who actually do stick together, the kind of people um, who actually love one another, then we need a relationship with the God who is himself love. That's the only way out of this self-centered mess that we're in. And relationship with this God, it has to first involve him forgiving unfaithful people like us. We're just the unfaithful people. That's what category we're in, and we need to be forgiven that. <clears throat> relationship with this God has to involve his receiving betrayers into relationship with himself and making them able, and actually changing them, making them able to become faithful and to love one another. That's a theme throughout the scriptures. It's what our passage is about this morning. The God of real love, real love, came into the world to fix our self-centeredness and to make us more like him. So Paul is saying here to the Philippians, if you believe this gospel, if you believe in this God, if you live in the incarnate one in Christ by faith, then you will be able to pursue a harmonious unity in the church that is characterized by people humbly loving one another. It says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or uh, communion or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So, of course, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, there are these things, right? There are these encouragements and comforts and participation and fellowship. There are these things, but it's an invitation to believe these things and to appreciate these things and to begin to live more and more with these things as the central defining realities of our lives, to let these things bear their proper fruit in your relationships. So if these things are true, if you believe these things are true, and if, you're, if these things are taking root in your lives, then complete or fulfill my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord. And that's a, an interesting word, I think. It um, literally would be translated having a, a shared psyche, being together in soul, and being of one mind. Right? So that sounds like relationships that work. That sounds like real unity. That sounds like relationships that will last. And that sounds delightful. <laughs> that's what Paul says this will really complete my joy. We're meant to have that. We're meant to have these relationships in the churches about this. But you can't be ultimately self-centered and have this kind of unity. Not really. So twice, Paul makes this important contrast between self-centeredness and humble love. That's what he's talking about here in the next verse. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, or that word could be translated vainglory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's a natural ranking system to self-centeredness. I'm number one. And everybody else is not. Doesn't really matter the prioritizing after that, right? <clears throat> I'm number one. The self-centered person is always looking to advance his own agenda, to bolster his own image, often over against other people, comparing himself to others, and he's fixated on his own interests. He can't help but be fixated on his own interests, often at the expense of other people, using other people to advance his own interests. Christian morality is relational. It has to do with our relationships with each other, with God first and foremost, but also with others. Christian morality is summed up in love. This is something about our relationships, but the self-centered person is actually anti-relational. Can't love, doesn't love. It's by, by definition, that's what his self-centeredness means. Anti-relational, and that's natural of all of us. It's natural to all of us, but there's an alternative to that. There's an alternative. Because of the gospel, we really can humbly consider ourselves, uh, <clears throat> consider others more significant than ourselves. We really can prioritize their interests and not just our own. So Tim Keller has a little book. <clears throat> it's a great little book, and there's maybe one free copy left on the book table out in the hallway. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Path to True Christian Joy, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He's talking about humility. That's what he's talking about. The essence of gospel humility is thinking of myself less, thinking of others more, not needing to think about myself, being able to think of others more. And he calls it a freedom. Tim Keller calls it a freedom because it is not something that comes naturally to us. We need to be set free from our self-centeredness. And that alternative is only available to us in Christ Jesus. Our relationality has to center on Jesus himself, or it's no good. Because he's the only one who truly loves. He's the only one who's not self-centered. <clears throat> so if we're going to be set free from our self-centeredness, 
it'll have something to do with Jesus. It has to. So the next verse, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is, um, I think, particularly Christian language. It's maybe language that's hard for us to get our minds around sometimes, but it's vicarious language. It's vicarious language. It's the language of faith. It's the language of trust in Christ. Paul isn't just saying, Jesus is a good example. Follow his example. He's not just saying that. He's saying Jesus has this mindset that is not self-centered. It's a mindset of real love and real unity. Jesus has this mindset, and so do you, because his mindset is yours when you're in him by faith. And this is the best part, the description of this new mindset. And that's, the, I think, the best part of this uh, Scripture reading for us this morning is the description of what Jesus is like and what his mindset is like that we have because we're in him vicariously through faith. Starting in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born or being begotten in the likeness or the image of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So uh, those verses, and actually a little bit further, 6 through 11, it has this poetic structure. It's very beautiful. When you slow down and look at it, uh, spend some time with it. It's been called a hymn, a great Christological hymn. And it's very important to understand properly how it begins. Because it really sets the tone for what Paul is saying with this hymn. The way that it's translated in, um, in the ESV, which is the translation that's printed in the bulletin, and probably a lot of you have ESV Bibles, the way that it's translated in the ESV it could convey what I think is too much contrast. Too much contrast, as if Paul were saying, even though he was God, he became a human being and did these things. Or, in spite of being God, he became a human being and did all these things. As if Paul were saying, Christ was incarnate. As if Paul were saying, Christ, God became a human being, and that was something out of character for God to do. Even though he was God, contrast, he did this thing. Something out of character, or contrary to his divine nature, as if pouring himself out for us, which is what this is a description of, what Jesus did in his life, as if pouring himself out for us in extreme humble love were somehow incompatible or mutually exclusive with true deity. That's sort of how it comes across, the way that it's translated here. Don't think that. Don't think that at all. Do not think, when you read this, in spite of the fact that he was God, he humbled himself. That would be a big mistake. That contrast, that contrast, if that that were a real contrast, it would only be true if God were naturally not humble. If God were naturally self-centered, but that's just a projection of ourselves onto him. That's what we're like, and we can't imagine anybody else being something different. God is not naturally self-centered. And here's the proof. 
he was willing to enter in a state of utter humiliation for us. If I were in God's place, I'd never condescend to that level. I would never stoop so low. If I were in God's place, I would never live so totally for others, people who had rebelled against me. Obedience and service wouldn't even be in my vocabulary if I were in God's place. I would certainly never die for others if I were in God's place. I'd never do it because I'm not him. I'm me. And that means a self-centered sinner. And that's why it's so difficult to understand God. I'm so unlike him, and I've projected myself onto him, defining him by my own understanding of what deity must be like, must be the self-exalting kind. It must be the the self-centered kind, where it would be out of character for him to do something so drastic as become a human being and humble himself and die. But he reveals who he really is and what he's really like in his son, Jesus. He's revealing himself to us. So here's the key to understanding this great Christological hymn of, uh, of God's glorious humility and his self-giving love. The, the participle that's at the beginning of verse 6, where it says, though, in the ESV, though he was in the form of God. Real simple change. It should just be translated being. That's... Uh, that's completely legitimate translation. Being the God that he is, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a mind blower. Let me know if you get your mind around that. Being the God that he is, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be clutched and held onto. He is God. He's the true God. And that means he doesn't clutch at status. That's what it means for him to be God. He does not clutch at status. He doesn't mind lowness. He reworks our definitions of what it means to be God. Being the God that he is, he emptied himself. He became a man. He became a servant. He humbled himself. Being the God that he is, he became obedient to the point of death, even that most terrible, most humiliating death, death on a cross. Being the God that he is, he entered into our world of sin and he took our evil on his shoulders to the cross to atone for it. Being the God that he is, he looked at unfaithful people like us. He looked at betrayers who broke our relationships with him and everybody else in our self-centeredness. We broke the whole world. Being the God that he is, he looked at us and said, I'll fix it. And he went to the utmost lengths of love and sacrifice to fix it. Being the God that he is, he saw us in, our, in the misery. That's what self-centeredness really brings about, is misery. He saw us in, in the misery that we've brought upon ourselves, and he knew the only way we could join him in the joy of love was if he gave himself to us, he gave himself for us in spite of ourselves being the God that he is. He chose to be with us, even though we would kill him when he got here. Being the God that he is, he endured the torment and the public shame, and he loved unwaveringly, and he gave unreservedly to the utter end. 
being the God that he is. And so Karl Barth said, God is always God, even in his humiliation. God didn't stop being God with the incarnation. God didn't cease to be himself. He didn't go against himself, his own nature. God didn't step out of character to become a human, to serve, to suffer, and to die. His divine nature is truly seen in the fact that he became this man, Jesus. His divine nature is truly seen in the fact that he went to this end, the cross. That's where we see very clearly what God is like, being the God that he is. He did this. In fact, that participle at the beginning of of verse 6, better than translated being, should be translated because he is. Far from giving us the idea that God became incarnate even though he's God, we should get the idea that God became incarnate because he is this God. Which sounds just like an answer to a why question, doesn't it? Why the incarnation? Because God is the God that he is. And that means love. Why the incarnation? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to be with us. Why the incarnation? Because in the absolute freedom of his love, he could do it, and he chose to do it, and he did it. Why the incarnation? Because this this kind of humble, sacrificial love that we see in Jesus Christ, that's the true nature of his holiness. It's what it means for him to be God. Our Old Testament reading, uh, thanks John for reading that earlier, Isaiah 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He he has fellowship with the low. Even though he's high and exalted, he makes himself low. That's what it means for him to be holy and for him to be God. And Jesus, when the Son of God came into the world, he took on human flesh and he lived our life, he did it perfectly. He pulled it off. He did it. He did just what we needed him to do. He took humanity. He reworked it in God's image so that his humanity really reflects the image of God, really reflects the divine nature. He lived the human life just as God would have it, divinely. That is, characterized by humble love for the sake of relationships, for the sake of other people. He did his father's will, and he represented his father as the true son should. That's what he did. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. True glory. True glory is not the self-centered, conceited, vain glory, the empty glory that Sinners imagine it to be true glory is the glory of this God 
that we see in Jesus Christ this humble, other-oriented, self-emptying kind of glory. That's real glory. And this is what God affirms for all to know when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, when Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at God's right hand. This is what God was affirming for all to know. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the perfect image of God. The humble love of Christ, that's what resounds in the halls of heaven. The humble love. The obedient sacrifice of Christ, that's the divine resonance pattern. He is the greatest of all because he made himself servant of all. And all will know it, and all will confess that he is Lord, that his kind of lordship is true lordship, his kind of glory is true glory, his way of life, the true way of life. In the incarnation, God has taken our humanity, he's taken it all the way up into true glory, which is, of course, what he's intended all along, what he's planned for us all along, what we were meant for, and what he's going to bring about, taking our humanity up into this kind of glory. Our self-centeredness has not stopped him from loving us and doing what's best for us, which means fixing us and making us to love like him. Our self-centeredness didn't stop him from loving us and from changing us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God, God made us in his image. That's clear in the scriptures right from the very beginning. God made us to be like him. He made us in his image for the joy of love. The one God who's at the heart of the universe is persons who have their, their wonderful, harmonious unity in considering each other more significant than themselves. That's what it means for God to be God. Complete other orientation, other centeredness. And we've been fashioned in this God's likeness. And we're meant to have unity like his. In the same way, through this other-oriented love, this humble love, and even though we've made ourselves miserable in our selfish ambition and in our conceit, his joyful love was too strong to leave us there. He came to renew and remake what was broken through our sin to welcome us back into the image of the true God to give us his own mind about things. His own spirit, his own joyful love. He came to remake us. So Bonhoeffer says, Advent creates people. The coming of Jesus, the coming of the incarnate one, the Son of God becoming a human being, that creates people, new people, new people. When the Son of God came in human flesh, he made humanity new. So why? Why the incarnation? Because he wanted to? Why the incarnation? Because he is who he is. And that means humble love, the kind where he pours out his life for others. Why the incarnation? Because he would renew his image in us, and that means our humble love, as his mindset becomes ours through our spiritual relationship with him. This God is at work in you to want what he wants and to think the way he thinks. 
and to give yourself the way he gives himself. This God is at work in you to be like him. Because, and it's because he didn't mind lowness. God himself didn't mind lowness. Because of that, you don't have to mind lowness. Because he was obedient. He was obedient. You may be obedient. Because he served, you may serve. Because he was humble, you may be humble. Because he poured himself out for love's sake, you may also pour yourself out for love's sake. Because he's, he's of a mind to be with us and for us through his uh, spirit, we may share unity in the same mind which is ours in him. So humility, humility is the fruit of a relationship with this God. It's a, it's a fruit of the gospel. Humility is godly. Humility is godlike. Counting others more significant than ourselves is godlike. It's like God when we're doing that. Looking to the interests of others, that's godlike. Obedience and giving your life for others, that's godlike. And we know that because we've seen it in Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh. And we really can be godlike because he's with us. And we're in him. And we have his mindset through faith. This gospel truth is such a reality in Paul's life. He's so concerned for the interests of others. He's always caring for and praying for and speaking to uh, the churches. He's so concerned for the interests of others that he suggests that actually his joy would be incomplete if the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't have this effect on the church. The apostle says it would mean the fulfillment of his joy to see others sharing the mind of Christ through faith, to see the church caught up in, in divine love, in godlike love, acting like God toward one another in their humility, and so having real spiritual unity. That's what would make Paul happy. Isn't that what we all want? It sounds delightful, doesn't it? Relationships that really work, real unity, relationships that last. That's exactly why God became a human. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it always seems like a surprise to us to hear what you really are like. And we can be surprised in, in a good way every time we look at Jesus Christ and see your character revealed to us in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. We have a good word about you, about who you really are in the person of your Son incarnate, Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would impress him more deeply upon our hearts and our minds, stamp his image in us through your Holy Spirit, help us to, to dwell in him by faith vicariously so that his mindset would be our mindset and we would have real unity, the kind that's characterized by humble love, just as Jesus himself was characterized by humble love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.